Hey guys, I'm so glad that you're back to talk about session five of our judges study. I'm Nicole Hager and today we're going to be looking at the cycle of Samson as judge and what a train wreck we get to discuss. Samson is an absolute mess, which you've been with us from the beginning. You shouldn't be surprised by this. Remember, we saw in the introduction this downward spiral of the Israelites and now we've been watching a downward spiral of the judges themselves. We started with some pretty good judges, and then we saw things take a turn with Gideon, and then they didn't look any better with Jephthah. We're given some minor judges that we're only told a few sentences about, but they're not remembered for anything positive either. And now we're going to finish with Samson, who is the last judge, and we're going to see just how far Israel has strayed from the Lord. So we shouldn't be surprised that this last judge and this downward trajectory is such a mess. And knowing that he's last is also going to help us to accurately interpret some of his actions. So let's dive in because we have a lot to cover today. We're going to start in chapter 13, verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah who the family of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore, for be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Okay, let's stop and notice a few things here. First, let's look at our cycle. At first, the steps start the same as what we've seen in the past, but as you did the homework, you probably noticed that the judge cycle, judge cycle of Samson is missing more steps than any other cycle. We saw that Israel again did evil, he was, they were following false gods, and God again gave them over to be oppressed by another nation, this time it was the Philistines, and then he starts to raise up a judge. But what are we missing? Well, you probably noticed that Israel had never actually cried out to the Lord to save them. They were so comfortable being ruled by this other nation and following these other false gods that they never even turned to God to deliver them. Think about what this says about the condition of their hearts. They apparently didn't think they even needed saving. But luckily, God knows what we need even when we don't. And the Israelites were still his chosen people, so he raises up to deliver them for them anyways. Also notice in verse 5, it said that this baby would begin to deliver them. This judge won't even deliver them fully from their oppressors. He's only just going to begin the process of delivering them. This is a huge digression from the judge cycle we have seen up to this point. This judge cycle is also very different from the others because it's the only cycle where we're given this nativity story for the judge. We see that God raised up Samson from before he was born and prepared him to judge Israel. This angel of the Lord comes to Manoah's wife, who remains nameless, and he tells her that though she's barren, she's going to give birth to a son, who is to be set apart for a purpose. You might have picked up a bit on some foreshadowing here, because we know that several years later, another angel of the Lord is going to come to a young girl named Mary, who's not barren, but she's a virgin, so also should not be pregnant, and the angel of the Lord is going to bring her news that the son she's going to bear is also going to be set apart for a purpose. The difference, though, is that while Samson's only going to begin to deliver the Israelites from the bonds of another nation, Mary's baby would completely deliver all people who would follow him from the bonds of their own sin. So Samson's story is going to show us more than ever how much we need Jesus, because no number of judges could ever truly deliver God's people. So let's look at the story of Manoah and his wife. They're told that their son will be a Nazarite from birth. In your homework, I had you look up what a Nazarite was, so you should have discovered that a Nazarite is a person who has taken this vow to the Lord for a certain period of time. It was called a Nazarite vow. 
This was a voluntary thing to do, and it was always for a set period of time. But in Samson's case, though, it was neither voluntary nor temporary. He was going to be a Nazarite from the womb to his death, and not by his own choice. A Nazarite vow, vow had three elements. First, for as long as a person was under the vow, they could not touch a dead body. If they did, there was cleansing rituals that they had to do. Second, they could not drink wine or eat or drink anything that came from the vine. That meant no grape juice, no grapes, nothing like that. And third, they could not cut their hair until the vow was completed. The length of the hair was sort of a marker for how long they had been under the vow. So the angel made it clear that Samson's mother was going to have to follow these restrictions even when she was pregnant. And he gave clear instructions for her on how to raise her son. So let's continue in verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God, whom thou hast sent, come to us again, so that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall the boy's mode of life be in his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I command. Okay, it's worth noting here that the angel of the Lord came to the woman and not to her husband to give this news. In a culture where women were seen often as less than, I'm guessing that most important matters would have probably been taken up with the men of the house. Clearly, though, we don't see the angel of the Lord treating her as any less than her husband. She comes home and she tells her husband exactly what the angel told her and what was his response. He asks God to send the man to teach him what they were to do. But wait, didn't his wife just tell him what they were supposed to do? Um, but apparently Manoah wants more information than that, or maybe he just wants to hear it for himself. I don't know. But God is patient and kind, and so he answers Manoah's prayer, and he sends the angel back. But who does he send the angel back to? Does he send him to Manoah, since Manoah is the one who asked for him? No. Again, he sends the angel to the wife when Manoah is not even there. So the wife knows, though, that her husband wants to hear this for himself, so she goes and gets him. And when Manoah comes, he asks the angel for the same information that the angel already gave. And look at how the angel answers. He says, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. So we see here, Manoah keeps trying to control the situation. And he keeps trying to bring this situation into his own hands so he can have some sort of control over it. And the angel of the Lord is staying pretty consistent with directing his responses to the wife. He comes to the wife and he even answers the husband's questions by referring back to the wife. Um, so we kind of see in Manoah a bit of a comical character, but we kind of see in his wife this calm and collected woman who believes what the angel tells her, and she's faithful to follow his instructions. So we're getting this other instance in the book of Judges where this woman is a picture of faithfulness and steadfastness. Now let's see what happens and how this continues to play out. Let's pick back up in verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. 
For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the kid with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their, on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah or his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in uh, Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtal. Okay, so what was Manoah doing when he asked the angel to stay and eat? Some commentators have pointed out that in the pagan culture that they were immersed in, because remember, they were immersed in the culture of the people that they failed to drive out and the culture of those who were oppressing them. So in this pagan culture that they were immersed in, when you fed a person, they were obligated to you in some way. And to know someone's name meant that you entered in some sort of give and take relationship with them. So we see here that Manoah is still trying to get the upper hand somehow. He wants more information than the angel is giving him. The angel's been pretty consistent, giving the same information again and again. But Manoah wants more information, and he's doing whatever he can to try and get it. We know that there's other places in Scripture where angels did eat with people, but here the angel refuses, and he's not telling Manoah his name either. He's not going to be controlled by Manoah in any way or to be in his debt in any way. So that's kind of what's happening there. And then when the angel consumes the food by fire and then the angel leaves, Manoah finally knows for sure that it was an angel of the Lord, and then he becomes afraid that they're surely going to be killed for seeing God. And we learned earlier in the book of Judges that this normally is a pretty rational fear. They know their scriptures, and they know that from other um, Old Testament stories, that to see God was not something that was um, was going to be okay. Like That was going to be basically something that would um, follow, death would follow that. So, However, in this situation, the fact that the angel came with instructions for them of what they were going to do moving forward, it wasn't really rational in this instance. So who again is the voice of reason here? The unnamed wife. Again, we see a picture of a woman who trusts that God will do what he says he will do, and she brings this rational voice to the, to the husband. One last thing to notice before we move on is the name that they chose for this baby once he is born. The angel didn't tell them what they were going to name their baby. They are the ones who chose the name Samson, and Samson means little son. Now, some people think that they picked the name little son because the Canaanites actually considered the son a god, and so this is kind of like kind of like a throw up to like a kind of like honoring this pagan god. So even though we've seen faith demonstrated by Samson's parents in many ways, we also see that they're a product of a culture that has blended the worship of the one true god with the worship of false idols and they probably didn't even realize that they were doing it. Okay, let's move on. We're going to read chapter 14 verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at that time the Philistines were ruling over Israel. 
<clears throat> okay. So the first thing we see Samson doing as an adult is that he wants to marry a Philistine that he saw. Remember, this is the man who was supposed to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, and yet he wants to marry one? It doesn't even look like he knew this woman or fell in love with her on accident or anything like that. It just says that he saw her and then he wanted to marry her. This does not sound like the actions of a man who sees the oppression of the Philistines as a problem. Then we see his parents demonstrate faithfulness because they're urging him not to marry an uncircumcised Philistine. The wording uncircumcised here shows us that their issue, issue is not because this was an, a marriage outside of their race or outside of this culture. This is not like saying that it is wrong to marry outside of race or culture in any way. But the issue is that it is a marriage outside of their faith in the one true God. This was a marriage outside of faith in God. So they knew that Samson was set apart from birth. It made no sense for him to marry outside of their faith. And yet he rudely insists, get her for me, for she looks good to me. Other translations say, she looks good in my eyes. So he's not saying he or she's pretty when he says she looks good to me, although I'm sure she was pretty. I mean, he basically falls in love at first sight with her. But what he is saying is that she seems like the right choice in his judgment. So notice what's missing. Is there any consideration for what would seem right in the eyes of the Lord? No, there is not, only for what seems right in the eyes of Samson. We see though in verse four that even though Samson is not looking to the Lord for direction, God is still working behind the scenes and God has a plan in all of this. Okay, let's pick back up in verse five. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah and behold, a young lion came roaring toward him and the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a kid though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on, eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. All right, so this lion comes, who was most likely sent by God to demonstrate what supernatural strength he has gifted Samson with. And Samson tears him up as easily if it were a young goat, which is apparently easy, I guess. I I am really, really glad that I have no knowledge of how easy it is to, pair, to tear apart a young goat. And their culture was obviously very different than ours, but we can just take their word for it that I guess that was something that was easy. Um, and we see that God, for whatever reason, despite the absence of Samson seeking God, gifts Samson with a supernatural strength. And once this lion is dead, Samson is now in the presence of a dead body. Um, remember, he was a Nazarite, so there were things that he was supposed to do to cleanse himself when he was made unclean in this way. So, does he then go and faithfully follow the rules of this Nazarite vow? No, we see that he doesn't go and do what is necessary to cleanse himself. He doesn't even tell his parents about it. He hides what's happened so that he can avoid the trouble of cleansing himself altogether. And if that wasn't enough, when he comes back to the lion, he finds by some other miracle that bees have made their home in the lion. So instead of finding bugs and decay like you would usually expect to find in a carcass, by some miracle he finds honey. And does he avoid that honey in order to honor his Nazarite vow? Nope. He scoops it up and he eats it. Guys, that is so gross. But he doesn't just touch a dead body, but he actually consumes something that he finds inside of it. And what's more, he then goes and gives some of it to his parents, making them unknowingly unclean as well. 
talk about disrespect. So while his parents took this Nazarite vow very seriously, starting before he was even born, he seems to show so little regard for it. So then what happens? Let's read next about the pre-wedding festivities and see how this progresses. Verse 10. Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. And it came about when they saw him that they brought thirty companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, Let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen wraps and thirty changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me thirty linen wraps and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Propound your riddle, that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may tell us the riddle, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother, so should I tell you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And it came about on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. Okay, so if you didn't already dislike Samson, I'm guessing that hearing him call his wife a heifer probably did the trick. What happened here? So first, the Philistines bring 30 men to be companions to Samson, to Samson during the wedding festivities, as that was their custom. Notice we're seeing Philistine customs here and not Israelite ones. Also, in verse 10, the original language actually means more of like a drinking party than it means feast. So they were literally having a drinking party for seven days. So we are now crossing off rule number two of his Nazarite vow. We already saw he had no problem remaining unclean after touching a dead body. And now he is attending a several day drinking party when he's not supposed to eat or drink anything that comes from the vine. And while it is possible that he attended this party and did not partake of the wine, that is highly unlikely that that would have happened. Okay, so then we see that he gives this riddle, and it's got pretty high stakes to these 30 new friends of his. And if they can't guess this riddle, they each have to give him a linen wrap and a change of clothes, which was not cheap. Um, this was not kind of the same as when we have to get a change of clothes. They didn't get to buy clothes all the time like we do. So what we pay for a change of clothes is not an accurate comparison. I don't know what it would have cost them, but we can see by their reaction when they can't figure out the riddle that it must have been a pretty significant amount. But was this really a riddle, though, like something that people could actually figure out? No, it was an impossible riddle. Samson isn't playing fair. He's trying to trick them, and he's trying to unfairly make them give him a prize. So far, integrity does not seem to be making the list of one of his qualities. So the men go to his soon-to-be wife because the marriage isn't complete yet. We're still in the middle of this feast or drinking party. And they threaten to kill her and her dad if she doesn't find out the answer to the riddle for them. So we can't really blame her for what she does. Um, she's really basically facing death if she doesn't do it. And we see that Samson has a weakness when it comes to women. And he eventually gives in and he tells her. And so then she goes and tells these 30 companions. So you probably picked up that this is a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to come eventually with Delilah later on in the story of Samson. 
So Samson unfairly gives this impossible riddle. He caves because of his weakness with women and tells his wife the answer. And then when she tells the 30 men and they're able to answer correctly, Samson gets angry. He calls his wife, who he was previously so enamored with, he calls her a heifer. And then he goes to find and kill 30 other Philistines. And he takes their clothes in order to pay off the bet he lost. How far we have come from Othniel, that ideal judge at the beginning of the book. Notice what Samson did, though. He killed 30 Philistines. What have all of the judges done so far? They've declared war on their oppressors. They've killed lots of their oppressors. We're given stories and details about how God has come through for these past judges as they attacked and killed their enemies. Is Samson attacking Philistines, though, in order to deliver the Israelites? No, far from it. He's killing Philistines because he's mad that he lost an unfair bet that he came up with. Have we seen Samson seek the Lord even once yet? Nope. However, we have seen the Lord come upon him and give him strength, first with the lion and now with the Philistines. Do you remember in the story of Deborah, we were given one chapter that told us what the people did, and then one chapter that sang of what God was doing through it all? Well, just as God used the actions of the past judges who were cooperating with him and seeking him, here we see that God is also still working behind the scenes and using the actions of Samson, even though this judge is not seeking him or cooperating with him. God is going to use and work through all things. He's working when we seek him and he's working when we don't. What we intend for our purposes, God still uses for his own. Samson had a plan, but God had his own plan and he was going to make sure it happened, regardless of if Samson was seeking him or not. The Israelites had come so far from who they once were. And we find them here not even crying out to be saved. They were content to be ruled by the Philistines. We see the judge that God had took great care to raise up from birth is not even seeking him and solely acting for his own selfish motives. And yet God is still at work, saving his people who don't even know they need saving with a judge who doesn't even know that God's at work doing something through him. God killed these 30 Philistines for selfish reasons, or Samson killed these 30 Philistines for selfish reasons, but God was at work creating enmity between the Philistines and the Israelites. Let's move on. Chapter 15. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it came about that Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. And her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Then Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And Samson went and caught, caught three hundred foxes, and took torches, and turned the foxes tail to tail, and put one torch in the middle between two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and groves. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to her as companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you. But after that, I will quit. And he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter. And he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Of Etam. Okay, so Samson goes back to his wife later on. I don't know how much time went by, but um, a little bit of, a, of some, time, some time went by. And at least he thinks that she's his wife. But he learns when he gets there that since he left before the marriage was complete, that her father gave her in marriage to one of the companions. This actually wasn't a terrible thing that her father did. I mean, Samson left and abandoned the wedding, and her father was responsible for finding a suitable match for his daughter. They'd already spent all this money on this wedding, and that was a pretty big deal. 
and her father didn't want her to leave that unmarried, so he found another suitor for her, and she got married to somebody else. So when Samson comes back, he arrogantly thinks that he can just come back and be with her after he essentially left her at the altar in an angry fit. Um, then when he discovers that she's not his wife, but she's married to somebody else, he gets so mad. Look at verse three. He says, this time I shall not be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Did you catch that? This time I won't be blameless. Clearly, Samson is fully aware that he was blameless the last time. Otherwise, why would he make a point of saying that this time he wasn't blameless? He knew that he was playing dirty earlier with that riddle, and he knew that it wasn't a fair bet that he had made. He knew he was wrong to go and kill 30 Philistines to get the clothes when he lost the bet. Samson's character is far from shiny, and he's showing us in verse 3 here that he knows it. So then he's angry, and he feels like he needs revenge for the fact that his wife is not actually his wife after all. And even though it is 100% his own fault that his wife is married to another man now, he somehow feels completely justified to go and get revenge on the Philistines by burning all of their grain and crops. Again, we see him attacking Philistines in a pretty big way. But is he attacking them in order to deliver his people? No. Again, he is attacking them for his own selfish and vengeful reasons. So then... The Philistines see what Samson has done, and they go to get back at him. They kill the woman who was supposed to be his wife, along with her father. And again, for a third time, we see Samson go and enact revenge upon the Philistines for what they did now, and he goes and attacks them, and we see it says, with a great slaughter. So, to review, Samson is supposed to deliver Israel from the Philistines, and so far, he's tried to marry a Philistine, he's tried to trick her friends into losing an impossible bet, which he made for his own personal gain, he killed 30 Philistines when he lost the unfair bet he made, he stormed out before his wedding was complete, leaving his wife to be unwed, he came back later and found out that because he left, his wife married another man, and then in a rage, he destroyed the Philistines' crops to get revenge. Then the Philistines killed his wife and her father to get back at him, to which he responded with striking down even more Philistines with a great slaughter. It also looks as though he has disregarded his Nazarite vow by eating honey out of a lion's carcass, giving that honey to his parents, making them also unclean, and attending a several-day-long drinking party. I hope that it is clear how far we have come from the first few judges in the book. Three times now Samson has attacked the Philistines, all for his own revenge or personal gain. Not once have we seen him seek God or show any regard for God. Not once has he shown any indication that he desires to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And not once have we seen any sign of him wanting to follow the Lord's direction. And yet, we also see that God has come upon him by giving him strength. Because again, don't miss this. God's plans do not depend on our holiness or on anything else about us. God works in and through all to fulfill his purposes. He can work behind the scenes through us when we're seeking and following him, as we've seen in the previous judges, but he can also work in and behind the scenes through us when we're not following him. Although in that case, we miss out personally on experiencing any intimacy with him that would come with following and working alongside of him. Um, It's kind of like when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery And Joseph, when he's reunited, tells them, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. So those brothers, they missed out on any good that God was doing, but God used their evil for good. Samson's missing out on any intimacy with God that those previous judges got to experiencing, but God is using Samson's sin and his selfishness, and God is using it for good to deliver his people. 
Um, what good news it is that God's plans don't depend on us. He is at work regardless. Okay, let's move on. Verse 9. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Okay, so basically what just happened is that the Philistines come back looking for Samson to get back at him once again for what he had done. The Israelites learn that the Philistines want Samson, who, remember, is supposed to be their judge and who is supposed to be delivering them from the Philistines. And what do the Israelites do? They go looking for Samson to give him over to them. What in the world? Can you imagine that happening to any of the previous judges? Up until now, the Israelites had followed their judges into battle against their oppressors. Here, they send basically an army, 3,000 Israelite men, to fetch their judge and hand him over to their oppressors. Talk about a huge digression. And did you notice what tribe is doing this? It's the tribe of Judah, who in the beginning of the book was the tribe that stepped out in battle first. They see Samson as being against them and not for them. They even tell Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? They don't see the Philistines even as a problem. Their judge is who they see as the problem. Remember though, this is the first cycle in which they never cried out to God to deliver them. They don't want anything to change. They don't seem too upset about being under the Philistines' rule. So they go to Samson, and he strangely agrees to be handed over to the Philistines as long as the Israelites agree not to kill him. So now the Israelites, who are supposed to be God's people, are handing over the one God set apart from birth to deliver them, and he's hand they're handing them over to their oppressors. Let's keep going. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. And it came about when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramoth Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance by the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, so that water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore he named it Enhakor, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. Okay, so we see that again. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and gave him great strength. Even though Samson is still not trying to deliver his people, God is trying to deliver his people. So God gives him strength to do something that is not even remotely humanly possible. He breaks through his ropes, he grabs a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he kills a thousand Philistines with it. And because it was a fresh one, um, that means that the jawbone still would have had the teeth in it, and it would have been a better and more fierce weapon than if it were an old bone. Um, but 
even so, this is the one part of the account of Samson that I personally really struggled with. I mean, a thousand men, really? This just seems so incredibly impossible that I found myself searching for sources to help explain it. And yeah, there are some who say that a rounded number like a thousand is meant to be hyperbole, um, and that if it set up a specific number like 968 or something like that, then that would have meant to be literal. But regardless of it, if it's hyperbole or if it's if it's accurately like a literal number, it still indicates an incredibly large number of men to kill. We also lose a bit lose a bit in the translation from the original language because there's kind of some rhyming involved and some taunting as Samson makes a bit of a joke in verse 16. Um, so like one commentator kind of gave this translation that kind of gets at the essence of what Samson was kind of saying, and he kind of, this commentator worded it along the lines of Samson saying, "With the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in a mass." And so he's kind of bragging about what he's done in this mocking way here. Um, so whether that number 1,000, again, is meant to be taken literally or not, or if it's just him kind of mocking and um, using hyperbole, the fact remains that we're supposed to see that Samson did something that no human in their own strength would have ever been able to do. And the only explanation was that God did it, that God was with him and that God was the one doing it through him. So what then happens after that huge feat? Does Samson then cry out and give glory to God for performing such a great miracle? Not quite. We do, however, see him addressing God for the very first time in his account. But rather than humbly giving him glory and growing in his faith, we instead seeing him arrogantly demanding from God and showing very little faith. He's incredibly thirsty after killing so many Philistines, and he says essentially to God, What, so you're going to do something so mighty through me only to let me die of thirst? Gosh, it's so hard for me to imagine why God would have put up with that. But not only does he put up with Samson's arrogance and childishness, he answers by giving him water. So again, we see that God had some priorities here, and his priority is that he was doing something behind the scenes. He was not done with his plans for how he was going to use Samson. Um, so when God gave him the water, did Samson finally praise God and thank him? No, look at what he named the rock that the water came out of it. He named it En-Hakor, which basically essentially means fountain of him that called her prayed. So he basically named the rock after himself, not after the God who provided it. He named it after himself for asking for it. Come on, Samson, seriously? Okay, let's get to the last chapter. Um, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here just because we're getting long. First, in chapter 16, we see that Samson went into Gaza and saw a harlot, and he went to sleep with her. So note that this was another Philistine woman he is drawn to, most likely, because Gaza was actually the Philistine capital. And the fact that he was even in the Philistine capital at all, knowing that Philistines were hunting him and trying to kill him, shows how reckless and prideful he was getting. He seems to be taking greater and greater risks as these chapters unfold. Then the Philistines find out that he's there, so they come to attack and capture him, but somehow he miraculously gets away by tearing off the city gates, which is another impossible task that could only have happened with God's help. Then he meets another Philistine named Delilah, and he falls in love with her. So this is the third woman we are told about that Samson is with, and all three are Philistines. So the Philistines who are after Samson come to Delilah, and they offer her 1,100 pieces of silver from each of them if she can discover the secret of his strength. And this was a huge amount of money at the time. Um, just for reference, later on in Judges, we're going to see that 10 shekels of silver was a year's salary for one man. And she was offered 1,100 each from five different men. So that's 5,500 pieces of silver. 
That's enough for several lifetimes. So naturally she agreed. Let's read what happens next. Um, we're going to pick back up in chapter 16, verse 6. <clears throat> so Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is how you may, and how you may bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait in her inner room, in the inner room, and she said to him, to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toe snaps when it touches fire, so his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes which have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took the new ropes and bound him with them, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson, for the men were lying in wait in the inner room. But he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. And she fastened it with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pin of the loom in the web. Okay, so once again, Samson finds himself with a woman who is working with his enemies. She's trying to get information out of him to help the Philistines, just as his wife did in the beginning, or, or so-called wife. Um, he should have learned from what happened last time, but we will see that he did not. So just now, three times Delilah asked him what the secret to his strength was, and three times he lied to her, and three times she wakes him up yelling, the Philistines are upon you, as the Philistines run in and try to attack him. But of course, all three times his strength helps him to defeat them. So he had to know that whatever he told you, she was going to tell them. Surely he knew that she was telling the Philistines and he, that she was in on trying to take him down. Look at the third lie he tells her. It actually even involves his hair. He didn't give the true answer yet, but he's getting more and more careless as time goes on. He's getting dangerously close to the truth. Also remember, what were the three things that a person who has taken a Nazarite vow were to do? They were to not touch a dead body, which we've seen multiple times already that Samson has done, both with animals and with all these Philistines that he's killed. Um, they were not to drink wine or eat from the vine, which Samson has also disregarded when he went to a several-day drinking party, and we see references to him throughout as being near the vineyards. Um, and they were also not to cut their hair. His hair was the only part of the Nazarite vow that he had not broken. Let's see what happens next. Let's pick back up in verse 15. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the Lord of the Philistine, lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a, and he was a grinder in the prison. So, 
he had one part of his Nazarite vow that he had not broken. And then we see here that in his weakness and his arrogance led him to reveal his hair as a strength, knowing that Delilah would then cut it off. The very last part of his vow to the Lord, he threw away because he was annoyed. Look at his arrogance here. Even without his hair, he says, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Whose strength did he think that he possessed? He thought he possessed his own strength. He took it so for granted that he didn't think that what he did in regards to the Lord and his vow mattered. He thought that it was, own, it was his own strength and that it would always be his strength. But this last part of the vow being broken was the last straw and the Lord was no longer with him. And he was captured by the Philistines because of this. And his eyes were gouged out and he was brought to prison to grind grain with a hand grinder. This is where his arrogance and his pride brought him. So then he's in this prison and some time goes by. Um, and as he's in prison, we see that he's in there a while because his hair begins to grow back. Um, and then the Philistines, they get together because they're celebrating some sacrifice that they're making to their gods. And in this big party that they're having, they decide to bring Samson out for some entertainment. Um, so he's brought into this place where they're having this party. And we see that there's thousands of them there. And he's brought out in these chains and he's made to amuse them in some way. And then after that, this is what happens. Let's read the rest. We're going to pick back up um, in verse 26. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I might lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the lords and the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus he had judged Israel twenty years. Okay, we're going to notice a few important things here to wrap up. We see that for only the second time in the book that Samson actually addresses the Lord. He's changed the two pillars that support the building, and he asks God to give him enough strength to do what? To deliver his people? To free the Israelites from bondage? No, he asks for strength to be avenged for his eyes. He is still only thinking about himself. He's about to perform his greatest feat of strength, killing more Philistines than he has ever before, and his motivation is simply revenge. Now we do see that he did show some faith and that he finally acknowledges that that strength comes from the Lord and not himself. For him to ask for that strength from God, notice that there is something that has changed in him. But in a lot of ways, he really hasn't changed. He is still just thinking about himself and revenge. But God's plan to create division between his people and the Philistines has not changed. So God still grants Samson what he asks for, and he gives him the strength to do it. So Samson grabs the two pillars, he tears them down, and he kills himself, along with the 3,000 men and women who were on the roof of the building celebrating. It says here that he killed more people in his death than he had in his life. His death accomplished more than his life. Do you remember how we saw foreshadowing in Jesus in the nativity story of Samson? 
Well, here we also see a little bit of a foreshadowing of Jesus because every other judge had a whole army at their disposal, whether a big army or a small, they didn't do it alone. But with Samson, God showed the Israelites that he could accomplish his purposes through the death of just one man. So do you see how even in the fact that this death of Samson dying alone and killing all these men alone, it, it's the whole book of Judges keeps on pointing us to Jesus in different ways. But also how sad to be said of Samson that like in a way he was almost kind of worth more in his death than his life. Um, so we see kind of good and bad in this. Um, so what do we learn from Samson? What is our takeaway? A few things. First, there's always two stories happening. There's the story of what we're doing, and then there's the story of what God is doing in and through us. In the earlier judges, like Deborah, how we saw two accounts written out clearly, we see glory given to God for what he did through Deborah, Barak, and Jael as they seeked him and as they followed his leading. In the story of Samson, we still see the second story where God was working, even though Samson was not seeking or following him. So let's ask ourselves, are we living as Deborah? seeking God and giving him glory for what he's doing and wanting to be a part of what he's doing? Or are we living as Samson, living for ourselves and unaware of God, what God is doing behind the scenes in our lives? I don't know about you, but I really don't want it said of my life that what I did for selfish gain, God used for good. I would much rather have it said of my life that I followed and sought hard after God and that God showed up and did great things and that I got to experience in them and that I got to experience intimacy with him as a result of it. Second, we need to ask ourselves, are we living like the Israelites did? Samson was a reflection of Israel's true spiritual state. Samson disregarded the Lord bit by bit throwing away pieces of his vow until he threw away the last piece with his hair, and yet he still thought he could attack with the same strength because he did not know the Lord had left him. The Israelites, in a similar way, had turned from God time after time to the point now when they're completely unaware that they were even in bondage and needing saving. They too were not even aware that they were in need of God's presence. So let's ask ourselves, are we so comfortable with our sin that we're unaware that we are in bondage to it? Do we even feel our need for a savior? Or do we think that things are just fine as they are and see no need to cry out to God? Remember, just because we don't realize that we're in bondage doesn't mean that we actually aren't. If we aren't serving and following God, then we're serving and following something else. So what is that thing for you? Let's wake up to our need for the Lord in our lives. And finally, we need to see in this that God is good. He is always faithful and he comes to save his people, even when they don't realize that they need saving. Like the Israelites, we turn away from God towards idol time and time again, and yet God continues to pursue us and to draw us to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and that your good deeds and that your plan to seek and save the lost does not depend on us or our holiness, Lord, that you work in our good intentions and in our bad. You work in our um, attempts to seek you and you work in our in our sin, Lord. Whatever we do does not stop you from, from accomplishing your purposes and thank you for that. You are so good. Um, and God, I just thank you so much. Um, just for all of the, the things that we can gain from the book of Judges and how much that 
you're showing us um, just through the people of Israel um, just how easy it is to get in a spiritual state of numbness and thinking that we don't need you. So God, I pray that as we study this, you would wake up the parts of ourselves that are like the Israelites and wake up the parts of ourselves that need to turn to you and acknowledge our need for you, God. I pray that um, as we study this, that people would come to know you maybe even for the first time that you would become real in our lives in a deeper way and maybe even for the first time for some of us, Lord. So God, I just pray that as we finish out the book of Judges um, this next um, this next week, that you would continue to teach us, that your spirit would continue to move in us um, and that we would be just truly, truly changed by our time in your word, Lord. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.